Hi, I'm Wester Wagner, and you're listening to the From R for Seed podcast, a short series about writing that ties in with From R for Seed 2019, an anthology of prose and poetry. In each episode, we talk with an author whose work is published in the anthology, and we'll listen to their story or poems. This episode, Angelo Castiglioni drops by and he talks about his piece of relative colors. What I was trying to show is that as we get older, time, we all say, oh, time moves faster. Like, oh, like today just flew by and each year, years go by faster and faster. And, and there is a real aspect of that. As, as our lives get longer, a day is relatively not as long. I really like this one. Angelo discusses what he attempts to do here, and he gives us a glimpse at how he did it. We also dive into the healing power of writing and the limited knowledge we have of our own parents. Great conversation. Hi, Angelo. Welcome. Hi. This is a very, very sunny day, and you're inside (laughs) coming to our pod, talking about writing and your story and yourself. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, actually, out of all the stories I've I've read of the anthology, the ones I've read so far, anyway, uh, of relative colors is maybe one of my favorites. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the you. themes you deal with and the way you deal with them, and that's just that's just cool stuff. Before we dive into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about yourself. So maybe you can introduce yourself. Sure. All right. Uh, yeah, my name is Angelo Castiglione. Uh, I came to Edinburgh for the MSc in Creative Writing, as I guess is this program, uh, this anthology. And um, you know, I, I never thought I was going to go into writing. Uh, I studied psychology. I studied sociology. Uh, I worked as a mental health counselor. Uh, I worked a little bit with NGOs, uh, but you know, in the end, I, I kind of realized that I like telling the stories. So a lot of how I was able to engage with kids as a mental health counselor and uh, what kind of what I ended up doing mostly for the NGO was was telling stories and helping people relate uh, to those programs and those systems and those kids that way um, so I, I figured you know why not just go straight to the source and start writing and uh, found that I just have a lot of stories that I would like to write about so hopefully this is the beginning of something good <laughs> I guess well that's that's the idea anyway yeah <laughs> Uh, and how do you like Edinburgh so far? Oh, it's uh, it's great. Why did you pick Edinburgh then? Uh, it's, well, so I'm originally from California, and uh, this this might be uh, maybe considered wrong for some Scottish people, but I, I find Scotland to be kind of the the California of the UK. Really similar. The sun is out there all the time. <laughs> totally different weather wise, <laughs> but uh, personality wise, and, and politics, and, and kind of the, the way that people smile at you on the street, and kind of the welcoming aspect of uh, social interaction here is really similar and that's just something I value a lot so you know a lot of writers want to go to New York New York's the the, the writing Where epicenter everyone is cold and yeah. doesn't actually want to talk to you but yeah I mean, I mean I've spent time in New York and um, I just I never really felt like I fit in in a lot right. of those kind of climates so so coming here was a relief in New York everyone fits in but everyone doesn't at the same time yeah yeah kind of, I think so everyone fits in because they don't fit in kind of yeah I think it's a everybody's a little bit required to find you know that their thing to latch onto. here it's a there's there's like a free-flowing aspect so I, I really like that and then of course Edinburgh University is just but you knew that before you so. came here or um I mean I knew that about Scotland uh, mm-hmm. every every Scottish person I met was like oh you'll love it like <laughs> they were all super nice and uh but, you know, then I just kind of saw the school, 
read about the teachers, really liked what I saw in the program, so here I am. Did you start, well, I mean, after you did uh, work for NGOs, you, uh, you mentioned that you started writing. Did you start writing before you entered the MSc as well, or? I did. Um, so I've kind of off and on written a bunch of little things. Uh, played a lot of music. I was in various bands, uh, sang for different bands, wrote a bunch of lyrics that way. So I kind of got my start in creatively writing, uh, not academically writing, right, right. Uh, through music. And then from there, I realized that I wanted to kind of go a little bit further than verse and start going into prose and writing um, fiction and kind of getting deeper into characters and those sort of buildings rather than just an emotion up front, which is also beautiful. I love poetry, uh, but I was trying to take it, I guess, in a different direction. Right. You thought that maybe songwriting was limiting to yourself? Um, I think it was just that maybe I didn't see as much of a career there. I did that more for fun. And I I, I love music as like a a personal thing that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need to pursue that in a, in any kind of monetary way. I I just wanted it for myself. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of why we're all writing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You don't, you don't do it for the money generally. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) So what kind of stuff have you been writing here, I suppose? So here, uh, I've kind of been trying my hand at a bunch of different things. The way that I look at the program is it's a good opportunity to see what kind of range you have, see what works, see what people respond well to, kind of, uh, I mean, we're all trying to like hone our voice, you know, that's, right. that's kind of the term you always hear. But uh, I've, I've kind of dabbled with different genres. I've written a few things that are a little bit surrealistic, kind of uh, magical realism, um, a lot of fairly angry pieces so some things I felt like I just needed to clear out from my mental closet uh, different things about friends going through uh, drug issues um, uh, different jobs uh, issues with kind of like capitalist California type things um, but then mo- once moving beyond that I, I, I think I largely got interested in the way that we communicate with other people and, and often the kind of false consciousness that we fall into when we we what when we find ourselves in a relationship whether it's familial friendship um, or romantic and I'm, I'm kind of trying to help people bridge themselves closer together without uh, what we, we live in we live in a, a culture where everybody's so gung-ho to do things and they're very idealistic and and that's great um, but I think lots of times people jump into things with a notion that it's going to be something more than it is, you know, like, so say for writing, people could come into the writing program and be like, Oh, I'm going to become a millionaire. I'm going to be the next Stephen King, you know, but, but there's, there's a realistic aspect of it that it's, it's a, it's a struggle and it's, it's creative, but it's also not necessarily guaranteed. And, and that's important. And if you can kind of bridge that mindset, you'll enjoy what you're doing a lot more. You'll enjoy writing a lot more. Um, so if, you know, people start looking at relationships in a way that's a little bit more of a give and take uh, and not like a, ooh, I can just fix everything and that's just how I'm going to make life good for me. Um, then maybe they'll they'll be able to kind of get through everything smoother, you know, and not be hit by these moments of, right. oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> Do you have an example of your writing where you did just this? Uh, yeah, so actually the, the last story that I, I wrote for the workshop here um, was about this this husband and wife that uh, they moved to the the husband inherited property after his father dies and they move out to the countryside to go live in this place and and 
the, the wife is thinking, oh, this is kind of the ideal, you know, we're older now and we're inheriting this property and we can create the life that we want out there and this freedom of that that gives. Um, and the husband's trying to be like really supportive in, in this way that he's, he's trying to do everything he can like for his wife. And um, it's, it's kind of a nuanced story uh, in, in the sense that he's trying to give her this, this freedom. So he gets really obsessed with uh, cleaning out the garden for her. And he's like, I'm going to give you this space. And this will be like, you can do whatever you want. Um, and what she slowly comes to realize is that it's what he's, he's, he has to give it to her. So this freedom that she's kind of hoping for of coming into the countryside, she's realizing is um, not really of her own making. It's dependent on him allowing it. Yeah. And, and I think that um, I think that lots of times we, we seek freedom through other people providing certain things for us and, right. and within a relationship that can be really complicated um, because then you start realizing that somebody else has a control over kind of your emotional well-being exactly. even if their uh, intentions are good good intentions don't necessarily always mean a great relationship um, so without like giving away all too much of that story if, if I ever end doing anything with that uh, it kind of comes into conflict of like he's He's fighting this garden that's that's being overgrown by a weed that it ranges into kind of the fantastic. So the weed is growing overnight just way too fast. And he keeps like warring with it every day. And he kind of slowly starts to ignore her right. life there. And you realize that he's so caught up in the war to provide something for her that he's not really providing her with the emotional which fulfillment, which yeah. is, I think, what on a basic level, what we all want. <laughs> um so yeah, I guess that's 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 kind of that dynamic. And she's thinking like, oh well, he'll just get over that, and and, and Daniel, I can, I Daniel can will fix give back him. to me. And, yeah, and, yeah. And she's trying to kind of uh, clean up what his emotional trauma around his family that he wasn't close to dying and this experience, but he's just ignoring it. So she keeps thinking like, well, if I just am able to like do this for you, and he's thinking if I can just do this for you, we'll have the, a good relationship. So she's like cleaning out the house and trying to find what's important from his childhood and stuff but he's just totally not paying attention to that and then you know so they're kind of having this this emotional disconnect yeah exactly they're kind of chasing each other in circles trying to fix right. each other's and space this is, you know and this is a theme that you happen to come across that you liked or is it something that you've always been interested in to uh, talk about and yeah. maybe also in your songwriting it's 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 been something that that i've, I've thought about a lot um I mean, okay, largely coming from the fact that uh, what I guess histories of relationships and stuff, and I'm, right. I'm trying to understand how people uh, could have the most positive experience possible, and and I've had my history of uh, problematic relationships. Uh, I think I think we probably all have in in some way. Well, that's um, what you learn from, of course. Yeah, and I, I guess I I in a lot of those experiences, I really sat down and was like, what what is going on here? That's um, so that when I what, agree into my next relationship uh, with my next partner, it can there's positive growth. Um, right. So a lot of that just is kind of a natural life experience. But then um, I got into kind of the philosophy of it uh, from reading, you know, characters like Jean Paul Sartre and uh, Albert Camus. Uh, kind of this false consciousness of how how we address our realities and how we like take control of them and try to. Um, shape things for other people but we can't really because we only really have the control over our own lives and yeah. 
try to get those circles to interact with other people in a way that's not uh, dominant or authoritarian in any way and kind of got lost in that world, I guess. So. Well, no, this is cool, though, because generally when I, when I read, well, when I am, I guess many people read books, you try to get something from it as well. I mean, obviously you want to be entertained. Maybe you want to learn something. What I learned from reading books is, is how people interact, right? And, and, and how people people are different from what I am like and how these interactions between people work. And if you have a very good understanding of how relationships, for example, work, maybe personal anecdotes or, or maybe personal experiences that you can share, you can actually teach people in your work as well. Definitely. I think, um, I think one of the greatest parts about storytelling is the fact that uh, there's often so much to relate to. You know, you read a book and there's a character that you're like, oh, this really captures this thing that I've been feeling for a long time. Right. And I think that it's surprising. The more that I read people's stories throughout this program and, and just the more that I read in general, uh, I discover there's, there's really something to be learned in everybody's story. So right. I'm just really trying to encourage people doing that as especially as a form of kind of personal therapy i guess you know helps it helps get it off your shoulders it's it's, it's maybe a personal therapy but it's also whenever you write you put a piece of your soul on a plate and you give it to people Mm -hmm. and it's something very personal but that just well on the one hand it's personal but on the other hand just because it's so personal it's something that you you wouldn't normally share with people only mm. through writing is that's the kind of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily hear from someone when you talk with them face to face and that's the kind of stuff that you can actually learn from i think yeah definitely I, I'm, there's definitely a different uh, a different way that writing hits you because it would what, when we talk to each other lots of times uh, we're so caught up in kind of the visual and sensational experience of that interaction you right. know we we're we're looking for ourselves and the other person, like all those sort of things. When you're reading, there's a, that certain level of removal that allows you to kind of think about how it, it affects you personally without you getting caught up in what you look in like, how you're twitching, you're exactly like, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Shall we talk a little bit about your piece? Sure, yeah, definitely. Because, well, like I said, you did you do some interesting things with it. I think you're the only piece of fiction in the anthology that actually does some sort of experimental writing. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the ideas you had going into this piece? Definitely. Um, so this piece uh, came from, not not to go too litty here, but uh, kind of the modernist idea of how we interact with time. And um, what I was trying to show is that as we get older, time, we all say, oh, time moves faster. Like, oh, like today just flew by. And, right. and each year, years go by faster and faster. And, and there is... Um, there is a, a real aspect of that. As, as our lives get longer, a day is relatively not as long. Right. You know, a year is, is shorter when we're 26 than when it is when we're two. You know, when we're two, a year is half your life. You know, when you're 26, it's only 26. Then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And um, what I did with the story was I tried to, or with, with the help of some uh, physics friends, uh, put together a formula that was able to actually get word for word um, breakdown that let's see how to how to explain this clearly I tried to make it so that the sections as he gets older diminish so he has less words to be able to tell his story and the father character who is painting throughout and trying to kind of 
show the world his life story. He he's he's getting more poetic as he's realizing that he has less space to be able to tell his stories right. as time is moving faster. And this, his son, who's witnessing his father, is kind of falsely thinking it's um, just him getting delusional and and uh, more esoterically, you know, hidden behind his kind of delusion of life. But it's more that the the father's trying to pack as much as he can say into as few words as possible. Um, shall we listen to John Reed first? And then yeah, we'll definitely. Talk about this later. Of Relative Colors by Angelo Castiglione. As a small child, I was fascinated by my father's constant painting, though I had no notion of what it was really about. I spent hours watching him put layer upon layer, mixing paints and with broad strokes spreading them across the canvas. The colours were frightening and bold, giving me the impression, although I lacked the vocabulary to express it at that age, that he was illustrating life by capturing it the way he chose to imagine it. As I grew up, I became more aware of the world and noticed that every day my father painted the same picture over again. The paintings both confused and scared me. They were all simultaneously a portrait, a landscape, a still life, a motion, and some sort of edifice all at once. It wasn't until I was much older that I came to understand what he sought to achieve. It wasn't until I was old that I was able to perceive the nature of his quickening campaign. When I was eight, I asked him, for the first time, what he was painting. He answered me with a story. This painting is of the time my friends and I sailed from Morocco, he started. Neither my companions nor I had ever sailed open waters before, never having even left the marina. But we were determined and driven by the confidence of youth. Not a week out, a savage squall descended upon us and tore our mainsail, Fortunately, for I did not know how to swim, we had a most righteous ballast that kept us upright. After the storm died, we slept, using the small motor to keep us moving. When the gas ran out, we smoked cigarettes, hoping the currents would carry us to land. Some days later, we drifted into view of an island, which I learned was called Sao Miguel. It was marvellously pigmented, massive emerald cliffs speckled in ruddy flowers that descended into the sea like a fragment of Pangaea, broken away and preserved in all its majesty. Of course, humans lived there too, and to our great relief, they spotted us and pulled us into harbour. The town of Ponta Delgada exploded with rich vivacity. Though we spoke no Portuguese, they welcomed us like we were their children. Nights were kaleidoscopes of tumbling shapes and sounds. Days were gardens of serenity. Being seafaring people, they happily fixed our sails in exchange for some light labour and song. My father sat back and grinned at his wild recklessness. We never reached Morocco. After staying on the island several weeks, we sailed home with renewed potency. I didn't know where this island was or what it represented but his enthusiasm gave me extravagant dreams. 
At 15, I remember asking about the painting again while sitting in the living room listening to Zeppelin records. I must have asked on numerous occasions before that, but this moment remains vivid. This painting is of the time I went to the Amazon in search of the lost city, he explained. I was unaware he had ever been to South America. I was already far less interested in explorers as I was in rock and roll, but his story held my attention. Two of my friends and I bet a man from Harvard we could find what Percy Fawcett had failed to discover in 1925. Our strategy was to start in Colombia and work our way inland, instead of starting in Rio as others had done. In truth, we had little knowledge of any previous expeditions and had only heard of Fawcett from a drinking game we used to play with the encyclopedia. But the drunkenness of our souls lasted well past our hangovers. Suffice to say, we landed in Bogota with very little to go on but that the Amazon was southeast, that it was a vicious green beast full of warriors and demons. Crossing into Brazil, we were stopped by paramilitary who claimed to be guerrilla communists. Our presence there did not please them. When it became clear to them we did not even know where there it was, they sent us home alive. My father's voice faltered on that last sentence. He said no more. He had always appeared to me as somewhat square. The idea of him in the jungle seemed ludicrous. When I was 22, he still painted every day. And every day it was the same beautiful and terrifying scene. I visited after graduating from university. I asked him then what he was painting. This painting is of the time I crashed my motorcycle. He did not smile. It was February and a grey winter and I had recently lost my first wife to cancer. I didn't know he had a motorcycle, let alone a first wife. I was on Highway 1. For two years I lived with her in California in hopes of escaping the cold, but it found me there anyway. She was the first woman I ever loved. She defied life's transience. She crafted eternity by pursuing the beauty in each moment. Every minute, every word, she could extract their essence and revel in them forever. The week she died, I wanted to be dead too. Lost, I spent an evening at the Fernwood Bar in Big Sur, mixing the spirits of the woods with the spirits of drink, hoping to find a curative cocktail. Around midnight, I went looking for Henry Miller. I crashed that night, going 80 miles per hour. I can't remember if it was on purpose. It was only thanks to a dense mass of lilac bushes that caught me that you were born. I cried when I left. I wondered if Mum knew, and I was angry for her. On Christmas, when I was 29, Father was still painting the all-too-familiar depiction. Age had caught up with him, deepening the lines on his face. His mind seemed somewhat distant, detached. I was concerned. Hesitant, I asked what he was working on. This painting is of the time I published my book. Growing up reading his articles, I knew him just as a journalist. It was a shock to hear he had published a book.
I wondered if this was true. It was successful, but sold exclusively in Europe. During the 50s, high-pitched wordism collections with scarlet covers were not so well regarded in America, unless you were edgy like Salinger or Kerouac, but I was never so acutely hip. I wanted to turn rusted words sapphire to show the hungry bones beneath. After a decent run overseas, however, people developed expectations of my next work, expectations I couldn't meet. I spent years searching, but disappointed my fans. I wanted to know more about this book, if it existed. Before I could ask, Mum called from the dining room that the turkey was ready. The evening passed quickly without further explanation. I forgot about the book soon after I left. One spring, when I was 36, I brought my fiancé home to meet my parents. I already knew my father would be painting. His absurd repetition worried me. Mum assured me, as she then often did, that he was fine. I didn't ask about the image for fear of embarrassing him in front of his new daughter-in-law. I hadn't talked to her of the paintings. He proceeded to tell us anyway. This painting is of the time I met your mother. The lightness in his voice was illuminated by the joy on his lips. She was a golden meteor that impacted my frozen planet, shattering it to stardust, only then set free to reform in the image of love, in the likeness of me, but with the graces of her. Before returning my attention to my fiancé, I remember being moved by his words. Moved and frustrated. It was then I first recognised the shallowness in my own relationship. At 43, divorced, career, two children, I saw my parents less and less. Father went to the ER, arterial embolism before declining into dementia, which would plague him the next seven years. I visited the hospital to find him sitting in bed with his paints, painting the same scene with the same violent and pointless colours. I was furious. I wanted to tear it apart. His stroke was finally measured. His words were disjointed. This paint is time-born. Cadmium, honey, locust, quakes and fall of rhythms and immortality. I was too angry to interpret his words. The days already moved so fast. After that, he couldn't remember my name. 50. Funeral. 18,307 paintings. All the same. All different. An infinite vitality of relative colours. He started when you were born. Mum knew every story. I wept the spectrum of his palette, trying to reverse the acceleration of time. His will to me, easel, brushes, paints. I now paint every day. Shall we delve a little bit inside the method that you use to write the story?
Yeah, so the way that I tried to, to break it down was that we had a, uh, a word limit, obviously, for the story. And I, I tried to break his life down into a series of, I believe, seven different, maybe I, maybe nine different sections. I can't quite remember how many sections there were. Um, but I, I, I separated that out by years of seven. So he's, I think it starts when he's eight years older, I believe. Sorry, it's a little bit. I didn't count it, but well... <laughs> Um, yeah, he starts when he's eight years old, and it goes each seven years, and he checks in with his father each seven years. So that's kind of the marker, right? Yeah, you know? and um, from there, I tried to take the amount of words that would be relative to being eight years old as what what is like a day worth to an eight-year-old right. versus a day worth to at the end of the story, he's fifty years old, and being able to draw that relative comparison of like the percentage value for that, I was able to set up a limit. So the story goes from, I mean, it would hypothetically start at zero and this is where some difficult adjusting happened, but zero to 50, um, the limit being 50 and then being able to distribute 1500 words throughout that. You don't want an infinite number of words when you're zero, right? Right, right. Um, But you know, when you're a kid, like think of, you know, an hour goes by, your parents are like, oh, no, 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 after the news. And you're like, the news has been going on like, my entire life, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know. I don't even remember what happened before the news. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's weird because when we're a kid, we don't, we don't see the weight in things like yeah. that. So We also don't understand time. Yeah, yeah. We haven't learned how to, uh, uh, to read clocks. So I tried to make it that the amount of words in each section, as anybody that can, can see this visually would understand, is... Uh, the amount of words are relative to the amount of time in this guy's life. So each section he ages seven years, um, and that's kind of the the point that he's going back to his father and, and asking his father again about what his, he's painting. But as as those seven years go by, each, that between each paragraph, each each paragraph is getting smaller and smaller and smaller until he's realizing that he he doesn't have the time anymore to talk with his father. One of the main themes is this: this the main character is interacting with his father, and, mm-hmm. and this and this disconnect he's feeling. Yeah, you know, his father is uh, painting this this one painting constantly, and I think that we often view repetition as a fault in some ways. You know, his father's trying to define something by doing it over and over and over, and each time he paints the exact same image he has like a totally different story and different explanation for it and um i like that though i mean for me it's kind of the reading experience sometimes you read a story and from one day to the next your interpretation of the story is just totally different definitely yeah i think uh, we have day-to-day kind of subjective experiences for how we interpret things and um i mean we live in a world where other than you know technological and developmental progress like that i mean it's people are still people like the world is still the world there's still trees there's still kind of these things but how we choose to define that reality changes often and lots of times it'll be based on our emotions based on our life experiences based on traumas however that feeds into our consciousness um this father the character i guess kind of realizes in his life that there's a lot of stories that are what kind of welling within him so he's in in some ways he's the writer (laughs) right um but uh 
the father is kind of the what he he's the one that's revealing to the son that life is is a series of perspectives that you get to kind of choose how how you see them even if they present themselves in ways that don't look like that mm-hmm. um, which i guess goes back around to just the whole kind of modernist way of seeing reality differently we all have kind of a different experience with reality and our lives and time and all that right. kind of stuff so oh yeah yeah I, what I what I really like about it is the, the the disconnect between him and his father, and I feel like everyone can relate to this. That the f- you've known your parents generally, you've known your parents for your entire life, mm-hmm. at least most kids do, um, but still you don't actually know that much about them. Mm. <laughs> and there is so much he reveals. I mean, he's destroying the same painting, right? But there's so much he reveals talking about these paintings of his life of his of his own life that this, this son doesn't even know about and it's revealing so much that maybe the son wish he didn't know maybe the son wish he did know there's just so much going on there that that i really like because that's something that i think a lot of people can actually relate to and i i did at least personally yeah it's uh, it's interesting because our parents have what uh lives that we could never see obviously you know yeah. but prior to us being born they have a whole uh, experience of love and sex and colors and history and music there's all this stuff that plays into their lives prior to you existing exactly and so sometimes as a kid we it's hard to understand that those the things exist outside of what we can see and then uh, you know we can read a history book and be like yeah okay everybody agrees that that happened <laughs> um, but like somebody's subjective individual life is not a history book right you now and, and it's changing constantly and not that can't be like verified by just like every single person be like yes we all agree that that's exactly what happened so right. in that sense you get to kind of create your own story of your history of your life and and the kid thinks that obviously his father is uh, fabricating a lot of this but whether he's fabricating it or not it's um, it's still a subjective history that he's telling about himself. yeah and he's still trying to get up across certain points of feeling you know like first one's kind of adventure with success and adventure with failure and then it goes into kind of like love with what love with failure love with success like writing it kind of goes through all those different things that he felt and he's that's what he's trying to get across to his son is more that all these emotions make yeah and that they're not going to be just super clear-cut and you're not going to be able to look back at them and just say like oh this is you know exactly what happened and it's going to just change and morph and you believe it or not, <laughs> I guess. So. At the very end, it says, I now paint every day. Mm-hmm. What was your idea with that last sentence? I guess it's the, what, we kind of take up the torch of like, we have our stories to tell now. And so he's realizing that for his children, he wants to tell the story of his life as well. Mm-hmm. And um, what, Painting in this to me is supposed to be representative of of telling your story right and sharing that with people in a way that can be helpful and um, Exposing and, and kind of Brit, you know build a relationship with your kids I think that's but, what his father's trying to do, but the kid doesn't <laughs> really see that But in a way, I mean he's painting the same he's painting the same picture every day, right? Mm-hmm. It, the only thing that changes really is well the day he's painting it on 
and the story he tells that comes with that particular painting, right? It's not the painting itself, really. Right, right. So that could be like, uh, you know, say your parent works a job all the time and they're working the exact same job and it's really easy to think like, okay, your life is just... It's just every day. Wake up, go to work, you come home, you have dinner with me, you have probably vaguely similar conversation that you had a few days ago, (laughs) you know, and, and, and there's a repetition to that. And I guess that whether you look at the painting as, um, as a metaphor for a career or a metaphor for, um, your, just your daily actions, waking up, having breakfast, the, the, the same things that we have to go through constantly. Right. You can view all those experiences differently. You know, you have a bowl of cereal, you might have the same bowl of cereal, but it might mean something different. Right. And as as a kid, or at least as a person, it's very easy to just in your head to be like, okay, he has a job there and that's all I need to know because I can just, I've heard him talk about his job, let's say three times. Mm -hmm. Now I know what his job is like. That's, that's kind of a chapter that I can close now. I don't really need to know more about it. Yeah. You're, you're showing every painting every day can actually be something. Yeah. And it can come with the story, of course. And sometimes we're a little resilient to the stories that our, our parents tell, like, I, I, don't, oh, know, yeah, I don't know about, yeah. I guess everybody's probably got a little bit of a different experience with this, obviously. But, you know, my father was a big storyteller. And, and sometimes, you know, he would tell different stories. Sometimes he would tell the same story, but he gets locked in it where he like couldn't quite remember that he's told me the story before, that sort of thing. But like people have obviously different family lives where they're like, but it's honestly, what is this fucking story? But it's honestly <laughs> you know, like, great hearing the same story again, though. Because it is. It's yeah. gonna be a different story. Yeah, you hear like a little bit of a different way that it went. You're like, oh, I thought, I thought that person wasn't there. That kind of changes the story a little bit, and you realize that it's about their experience and and what it how it affected them, right. rather than just the details of the story. And you, yeah, that's and, when and you realize that the stories are all well. And, and, and I mean, it's it's about the past, but it's also about the present, the present from which they tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, he's and he, that's very relevant in your your particular piece as well. Yeah, yeah, and then so in comparison with that, the the father is telling stories from his like each story that he tells is progressing with his age. So right. he's getting older, the main character is getting older, and he's telling stories of his life as it gets older. So his yep. first story starts when he's uh, you know early twenties, and then kind of moves on from there, and so he's he's kind of experiencing the amount of words uh, in tandem with the age that he was at that time. So there's this kind of crossing of of ages where it starts where he's telling a story of when he was younger than when the main character is at the end, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, there's kind of a lot of different like time pathways going through. But you must have had a difficulty getting the right amount of words. Yeah, so I luckily had some really good editors that uh, helped me with you know, all sorts of like bigger edits that uh, when they said, okay, this sentence is working, this sentence isn't working, I can, I could say, okay, if this sentence isn't working, I need this many words. What do I truncate? Like, what do I cut down on? Right. Um, can I add just a comma, take out some ands, that sort of thing, just to make it so there's the exact amount of words at the end of each one. But it doesn't, your sentences don't feel forced though, so. Yeah, well, I, I think um, it's, a, it's a good challenge if for no other reason, because oftentimes writing has so many superfluous words and we right. realize that you can get a point across with less words exactly. and, and that um, not only is it challenging it's also uh, quite fun and you realize that your writing kind of gets better so if you remove all the filler words yeah you know. yeah 
the story definitely started longer than this, so I think probably that's how it works for some people. But then I kind but of you did have the word limit though. You did I did, um, but I I actually inserted the formula after the like the first round of edits because I knew that there'd probably be some bigger things, some right. structural things, some plot things. Um, so then once those edits happened, I was okay. Now I can I know how many words need to be in each section, and now I can kind of adjust sentences and everything to fit, uh, which was kind of a like a search and destroy sort of thing. So it was yeah, like, yeah. okay, I'll cut that out. Like that's not important. This is this is important. You know, finding ways to say things with less words is a very valuable ex learning experience. Experience <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's also kind of interesting because the the father's having that same experience. He's realizing that he has less words to be able to communicate what he's trying to say. And in the end, when he starts going through dementia and getting towards the end of his life, uh, he's working so hard to produce like the handful of words that can say what he's trying to say. And, uh, you know, the son is still a little bit, he's so emotionally caught up in it that he's having a hard time breaking that down. But those words are supposed to be like the bare bones of just him expressing like his love for his son and why he's been doing this. But, um, I don't know. Hopefully, whoever reads this gets to see that and maybe feel what those words feel like. So, maybe it's something similar to what the kid feels at the end. Maybe. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. I, uh, and good luck with your writing career, of course. Oh yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I I look forward to uh, reading more of your work and hey. <laughs> doing this in the future. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. The From Arthur Seat podcast was produced by me, Wester Wagener, with the help of Megali Roman and Miro de Beer for 2019's From Arthur Seat anthology. Story excerpts were read by John Reed. Special thanks to Jack Taylor. From Arthur Seat 2019 is launching on the 8th of May. You can visit us at fromarthurseat.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>